Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In addition to being the fifth Sunday of Lent, today is what we call Passion Sunday. And today we enter what one scholar I read this week calls Deep Lent. Deep Lent. Where we switch from looking at Jesus' fasting and prayer and uh, our own journey of fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, and we turn more specifically and, and kind of zoom in, if you will, on the cross, on the passion, on the actual sacrifice of our Lord. And as we do that, I want you to keep a few things in mind. Number one, by the passion and cross of Christ, you have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And number two, there's a few things in our text that I'd like us to focus on. Number one, that the love of God is a covenantal plan instituted by his love for us. Number two, that the love of God to follow the law of God gives us a new heart because we can't do it in ourselves. Number three, the love of God gives us Jesus, who obediently dies for us on the cross. And number four, the love of God creates a clean heart in us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So again, just for review, we're going to talk about covenants. We're going to talk about the need for a new heart. We're going to talk about obedience and God's obedience to die for us. And we're going to talk about creating a clean heart in us. God has been planning this new covenant between himself and his people from the beginning. But let's talk about covenant really quickly first. What are covenants? It's one of those phrases or words that we don't use too often, I don't think, in modern secular society. We might have talked about the covenant of marriage, right? We might hear that word used, but I don't think we hear that much beyond the church. And so what are we talking about when we talk about covenant? Well, covenant, simply defined, is a solemn vow taken before God. A solemn vow taken before God. In the Old Testament, this solemn vow was actually between two kings, typically. It was what we would call in modern English a treaty. But it wasn't a treaty between equals, as we talk about treaties. It was a treaty between a superior and an inferior country, or a superior or inferior force. And so the kings would meet together, perhaps after a war, and the kings would say, okay, the weaker king, I will make a covenant with you. And if you fulfill these obligations, I won't wipe out your people. Right? And if you don't fulfill these obligations, and then they would have a sacrifice, so will it be to you and your people as is to this animal. 
So covenants are things of blood in the Old Testament. They're, they're solemn vows that are the strongest vow you could possibly make. And so God has decided to use that as a way to convey his love to his people throughout the Old and New Testaments to us as well. God uses this idea of covenant or this solemn vow, which he, of course, is the superior king, makes with the inferior, his people. We heard about that in our Jeremiah reading, and so I invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31, or you can look at the scripture insert on the first page, if you so prefer. God's been planning this covenant, this new covenant, he says. Look with me at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So we get this idea that God's going to make a new covenant with his people. And look, it's very clear from this passage who is the initiating party here. Who is the superior king? Look what he says. He's not suing for peace, notice. He's coming and saying, I will act. I will do these things. Did you notice that? If you, if you haven't, look at your Bibles and look at the I language that pervades the first reading. Verse 31. I will make a new covenant, says God. I will be their husband, verse 32. I will make, verse 33. I will put my law within, their, within them, verse 33. I will write it on their hearts, verse 33. I will be their God, verse 33. I will forgive their iniquity, verse 34. I will remember their sin no more, verse 34. Now, if that sounds like a jackhammer to your ears, yes, it's meant to. It's meant to. Do you see what the Lord is saying? I will do these things. I will act. I will accomplish them. Secondly, one has to ask here, well, why is there the need for a new covenant? What was the matter with the old one? Well, verse 32 tells us, not like the old covenant, God says, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Look what the Lord says here. He says that the problem with the old covenant, even though he treated this subservient king, the subservient people, like a wife, like a bride, even though he elevated them, even though he gave them every chance, they broke the covenant. And therefore, the old covenant won't work. Well, God knows this. The old covenant is constantly broken throughout the Old Testament. Time and time again, from Noah to Moses, to, to Abraham, rather, to Moses, to the kings, right? To King Josiah in the time of Jeremiah. God makes this analogy of covenant with marriage because this is how much he loves his people. But if God's covenant with his people is a marriage... It ain't a good marriage. It's a bad marriage. It's the worst marriage you could possibly imagine or think of. 
It's like the marriage between the perfect man who is always right and the unfaithful tramp. And I apologize, there's a little bit of rough language from Scripture coming up here. But this is what the Lord calls his people. Throughout the prophets, God calls his people unfaithful and adulterous. In Jeremiah 2, so starting off at the, more, at the beginning of this book that we're reading, our first reading from, Jeremiah says this, speaking for God, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. He continues with verse 19. Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every hill and under every tree, you bowed down like a whore. Well, he's not sparing any punches, is he there? God goes on to say that Israel is not only like a whore, but like a young restless camel or a donkey in heat in the desert that doesn't just bow down every, under every tree, but goes after anything with legs, essentially. If there's a God, they've had it. If there's a God, they want to partake. Israel has become an adulterous bride. This is how God's people of Israel and Judah have kept their side of the covenant. They haven't, notice. They've completely blown it. They shattered it. They destroyed the covenant. And they made a mockery of the marriage. The Old Testament is a record of God giving assistance and coming to the Old Testament people time and time again, trying to make the marriage work through judges, through kings, through priests and prophets. And they're not just failing. They're failing with flying colors. God's calling his people a whore is a pretty unsettling image but he does so again and again throughout the Old Testament prophets. And he does this with a point, not just to be mean, but to demonstrate that sin is ugly. Sin hurts. Sin destroys. There's no sugarcoating sin. There's no sugarcoating what it does to God's people. And the Old Testament can be boiled down to a few thousand year historical demonstration of what we say in the prayer book, Prayer of Confession, apart from God's grace, there is no help in us. Even with the aid of being God's chosen people set apart, even with angelic protection, even with direction from the prophets and kings, the problem of sin is too much. What if God came down himself, we might ask? Well, Jesus speaks to what God's people would do if that happened, both in parable repeatedly and then in action on the cross. They'd rather kill him than repent. They'd rather kill him than repent. He says in Jerusalem, or it, of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. But God sees this outcome from the beginning of time. He knows and is not surprised by the grasp that sin has on humanity. He knows the power of it. He knows its bonds. His old covenant demonstrates the need for the new covenant. All of the Old Testament is a testimony to the fact that we as human beings cannot escape sin by our own choice or through our own efforts or through more education or pick your solution that's not Christ. None of it works. None of it works. None of it worked then for thousands of years, and none of it works today. But God has a solution, a new covenant. Look at verse 32 and 33 of our Jeremiah 31 passage again. Verse 32 is the brokenness of the covenant. But look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When God says this, it contrasts with what is said earlier in Jeremiah, what is currently written on the hearts of God's people in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 17:1 is this. We read, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So what does it mean for God to write his law on his people's hearts, rather than to have sin engraved upon their heart. How is that accomplished? Is there any way to erase that sin that's already engraved? Well, we get the answer. Not of our own efforts, no. You see, there's no way that we can erase that. And even if we could, we still stand convicted by original sin the sin of Adam. But here in Jeremiah, God promises a remedy, a solution. And Jeremiah is not the only one that talks about it. This new covenant is brought about by means of a heart transplant. What if you could take the heart that's engraved with sin out and create a new heart that's washed and clean? That's exactly what God proposes and has done. Look again at the psalm that we read. Psalm 51, we started with verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, the psalmist knows. He knows that there's no solution without a new heart. He knows that this new heart needs to be created. And you know who else knows is the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel speaks this way about the heart. And listen to what's around it. So this is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 through 29, if you want to look at it. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 29. Ezekiel says, I'm sorry, this is starting with verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. 
Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. So what's Ezekiel the prophet saying here? Do you see the ties? He's talking about the new covenant as well. And he's talking about the fact that God himself will put a new heart and his spirit within his people. But look at the other imagery that accompanies that. It should strike you as familiar. A clean heart, a spirit, sprinkled with clean water, renewed by the Holy Spirit, saved from uncleanness, new covenant, new life. What sacrament does that sound like to you? The sacrament of holy baptism. Here we see Ezekiel and Jeremiah foretelling this new covenant and the means by which we enter into this state of being God's cleansed people with new hearts way back in the Old Testament. Do you see this hasn't taken God by surprise? God's planned this from the beginning. It's interesting to note that Ezekiel uses this imagery, but then he ends this passage with another image. He says in verse 29 of chapter 36, I will save you from your unrighteousness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. You see, there's still a problem. There's still a problem. Even if you could have a man with a clean heart, with a heart transplant. Even if you did that, what about the rest of humanity? How would the rest of humanity be saved? It's good for that man. He's clean. He's pure. But what about everybody else who are sons of Adam? You see, the perfect man isn't enough. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's still a problem because while that man could obey God perfectly, what about the rest? Are they lost forever? Only God can accomplish this. And so God sends the God-man, his son, fully God as well as fully man. And only Jesus Christ as his son, who's both fully God and fully man, can be the perfect offering. Only Jesus Christ can be the offering of full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction, as we say during the 1928 words for Holy Communion. Only he could be that for a wicked and adulterous world. And the Old Covenant is full of sacrifices and offerings. Hebrews tells us that those offerings are constantly going up on behalf of the sins of man. Some of them were burnt offerings, killed animals who were burnt upon the altar. Some of them were offerings of peace that also involved blood. Some of them were offerings of money for damages done. Some of them were offerings of purification. 
You can read all about all these offerings, by the way, in the beginning of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 5. But all this talk about covenant and offering on Passion Sunday should bring to vividness to us just who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Look at the John passage. For the first time, this struck me this week. I've read this passage so many times before, and I'm sure you have as well. But there's so much in here. Look at verse 24. Actually, we'll start with verse 23. So it's on the back of your scripture insert. John 12:23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come and the son of, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We know that Jesus is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, right? Most of us understand that completion of the covenant, right? The Lamb is of the atonement. But here we see Jesus giving us a different image, an additional image that I had never seen before. What does Jesus say? He says, I am this grain of wheat. Now, Jesus could just be using an illustration that people that are farmers in an agricultural society would get, right? All farmers know that you have to take the dead piece, the dead seed or the apparently dead seed and drop it into the ground, right? Before the new life comes up in the plant. But I think Jesus is doing more than this. I think that Jesus is actually hearkening back through to Leviticus. And he's talking about himself, not just as an offering, but as a grain offering to God. A grain offering was an offering of one's first fruits. It was an offering that the people of God in the Old Testament took the first fruits of the field and they put it upon the altar, the very first thing that they harvested, and they said, Lord, this is yours because all life comes from you. And Jesus here is saying, I am the grain that must die. Let me just read you a a selection. This is Leviticus chapter 2, verses 4, and then continuing with verse 8 through 10. We read in Leviticus, When you bring a grain offering, bake an oven as an offering. It shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And then continuing with verse 8, And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is present to the priest, presented to the priest rather, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Now, Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of the law. And he knows the law completely. Is it a coincidence that the man who says that I am the bread of life earlier in John chapter 6, or who talks about his body broken using a piece of bread at the Lord's Supper, here speaks of himself as the grain of wheat that must fall to the ground and die? I don't think so. I don't think so. As I thought about this, I asked myself, have any of the church fathers thought about this? 
And indeed, I found one who had, St. Cyril the Great, who's a patriarch of Alexandria from 412 to 444. And he writes this on verse 24. He says, And so, like a sheaf of grain, the first fruits, as it were, of the earth, Jesus offered himself for our sake. Jesus follows this passage, speaking of himself as the way to eternal life, speaking of dying in order to get life. Look at verse 27 and 28. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? That Jesus is exhibiting this perfect obedience to his Father, offering himself, God offering himself for the sake of the world, for the sake of a sinful and wicked people who are hopelessly lost in their sins. Like the grain offering, however, in Leviticus 2, there's more going on here. Because God and Jesus... And whenever you talk about the Trinity, you have to be careful, right? Three persons, one God. But God in Jesus is offering himself. But God the Father is offering his Son. His first fruit, as it were. His only begotten Son. As that grain offering upon the altar to save his people. To save his people who don't deserve it who don't even deserve part of it. All through his love. All by his grace. Just as holy baptism initiates us through God's grace and through Jesus' cross and burial and resurrection into a new life in the covenant with God, so holy communion is both a token, sign, and reality that Jesus' sacrifice not only cleanses us, but feeds us. Not only have you been saved, but you are being saved and have the promise that you will be saved by Jesus, by his grace. Both the old and the new covenants, you see, demand obedience to God's law. The difference is this. The old covenant brings about obedience or tries to bring about obedience by external methods by political laws, look at the Old Testament, by kings, by religious laws, by purity things, by sacrifices. But we know from the book of Hebrews that those things can never take away the sins of humanity. But the new covenant, that obedience is written, as Jeremiah tells us, in our hearts because we have the law through Jesus Christ written on our hearts in the sacrament of the Holy Baptism. And we have the Holy Spirit given to us at that point and continuing to feed us from day to day, from week to week in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Passion Sunday and Holy Week are powerful reminders that you have been saved through no work of your own, only by the blood of Jesus only by his grace, only upon his work on the cross. Nothing you could do could undo that sin engraved upon your heart. Only a new heart could help you.
Which is why if you pray morning prayer in the, in the Book of Common Prayer daily, you say that twice in morning prayer. Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Because we want to embrace that identity. We want to go forward in that. So Passion Sunday reminds us that God's plan, both of the Old and New Covenant, is a plan where we're saved by God's action, His offering, His only begotten Son. It's also to remind us that God has saved us by God's own obedience and not our own. Our own obedience is good, but it doesn't make us worthy before God. Only the person of Jesus Christ can do that. It also reminds us that we're saved by God's love and grace. It reminds us that we're saved by God being made clean in the sacrament of holy baptism. It reminds us that we're saved by God being fed in the sacrament of holy communion. And that we're constantly being saved from our own sinful desires and nature by the work of the Holy Spirit written on our hearts. But unlike the Old Testament people, we as the New Covenant, New Testament people, have God written in our hearts, and we have the Holy Spirit assisting us in our transformation. We all need to reflect on this constantly as Christians. I'm unsure how a Christian who truly reflects on this can look at the cross and the suffering and passion of Christ and fail to see how much God loves you. Do you see how much God loves you to give you all this, to save you from all that? When we reflect on this, the Holy Spirit should stir within us and give us gratitude and a desire to obey, not because in obedience we can make ourselves right with God, but because we respond to his love with obedience and love for what he's done for us. He has given you, dear friend, a clean heart. He has renewed your heart. He has written his law upon your heart. What places in depth in your soul, however, we should ask, are not in alignment with God's will. What places in your heart and soul are not in alignment with God's will? Where are you still struggling? Where is that sin that just won't go away? That pattern that you can't break? That thing that makes you miserable? We all have them. We all struggle with them, at least if we're being honest. Look at what our collect today says, the collect of the day we bring before God, and we say, Almighty God, who alone, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. You alone can bring to order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. What's the next part? Is it, let's work real hard and we'll be better people? Let's redouble our efforts to obey? No. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what the solution is? 
if you have those things that you've been struggling with, particularly this Lent, or been, maybe they've been made known to you even more, don't try harder. Quit. Quit. Give up. You can't do it. Rather, call upon the grace of God and let the Holy Spirit work in you to transform you, to give you that grace to accomplish that to which He's called you, to obedience, to holiness, to new life. He's promised that if you ask, He's not going to leave you alone. He's not going to leave you out in the wind. Right? He's not going to say, hey, look, my son, my daughter is calling upon me. Well, you know, try a little harder. That's not the God who we serve. No, we serve the God of grace, as our colleague tells us. And so as we go forward, let us reflect on the depth of his love. Let us embrace his grace. And the very things that you seek to hide from him because you're ashamed, let us bring those things to him and say, Lord, help me, for I can't help myself. Friends, trust in Jesus' salvation. For in the cross, you were saved. In the cross, you are being saved. In the cross, you shall be saved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.